the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, episode 58. You're listening to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast, where we explore the real stories of real people who have discovered the profound healing properties of the cannabis plant in their own lives. Find more at CannabisHealsMe.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. This is your host, Rachel Kennerly, coming to you once again from the Storybook Inn Studios. So glad you guys have joined us today. Got a great episode lined up for you. I've got Michael Bolden of the 10th Amendment Center joining us, and we're going to talk about civil asset forfeiture. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry. Just hang around a few minutes, and we'll tell you all about it when we get into today's episode. But before we get started, just want to, again, thank you guys for coming back. Thanks to our regular listeners. If you're new to the podcast, we thank you for coming on. Go ahead and click that subscribe button, and you'll automatically get each episode downloaded into the podcast catcher of your choice. I'd also ask you, while you're out there subscribing, go ahead and give us a rating or review. That helps boost us in the podcast app, and our show will actually get recommended to other people who are listening to similar type shows. So give us a rating or review while you're out there clicking the subscribe button. You also need to go out and subscribe to our newsletter. If you go out to CannabisHealsMe.com slash subscribe, you can get signed up for our email news. We send out that newsletter like twice a week, sometimes more, but usually not more than twice and sometimes not even twice because I forget to go out and do the email. But if you get signed up for the email newsletter, if something comes up, I need to get a hold of you in a timely fashion, then I can do that through the email newsletter. So CannabisHillsMe.com slash subscribe. Now, y'all know I like stories. That's what our podcast is founded on, telling stories. So I'm going to tell you a little story about civil asset forfeiture. And if you don't know what it is, again, Michael and I are going to dive into it. We're going to tell you all about it what the roots are, what the history is. But first, I want to tell you a story. This is the story of Antonia. She is a registered nurse. She lives in Houston. And she travels once a year over to Nigeria and offers a free clinic to... She started out just doing women and children in the area, but now she offers a free clinic every year for one to two weeks every year for anybody in the area that wants to come and be treated. She provides with her own funds all the medicine. She pays the wages for the nurses that are there helping her in this free clinic. All of this is funded with her personally. She felt a call to actually set up a year-round clinic in Nigeria. So she worked starting in, I think, 2010, from 2010 to 2017. In addition to making these annual trips over to do this free clinic in Nigeria, she was also setting money aside so that she could actually build a physical location in Nigeria and have a year-round clinic there to treat people. So in 2017, she packed up $41,377 in cash, put it in her suitcase, and headed to Nigeria so that she could start the construction process for her free clinic in Nigeria. Well, she didn't know that there is a law that if you're carrying more than $10,000 cash out of the country, you're supposed to declare that to U.S. Customs. Well, she actually got detained by Customs. They detained her for six hours searching her luggage and trying to figure out what criminal activity she was involved in that provided her with this $41,000 in cash. 
Well, they eventually let her go, but she didn't get to take her money. They kept her money. Now, Antonio was never indicted for a crime. She was never even charged with the crime, but they kept her $41,000. So she contacted the Institute for Justice and asked them to help her get her $41,000 back. So the Institute of Justice filed a lawsuit on her behalf to get the money back from U.S. Customs. Fortunately for Antonia, her money was finally released. She just got a check in the mail for $41,377 from U.S. Customs. But the lawsuit is still continuing because they didn't pay her any interest for the seven months that they sat on her $41,000. They're not paying any of her attorney fees. So she's part of the class action lawsuit that the Institute of Justice has filed against U.S. Customs because not everyone is as fortunate as Antonia. A lot of times people who have money seized from them, maybe it's a small amount of money. Maybe it's a thousand bucks. Well, for a thousand dollars, you can't hire an attorney to fight for you. So a lot of these people that have funds seized through civil asset forfeiture wind up losing the money altogether because they can't afford to fight to get it back. It's not worth it to fight to get it back. So I've invited Michael Bolden to come on and talk about this subject with me because I think it's a practice that a lot of people in America are not aware is so heavily used by law enforcement, both on the federal, state, and local level. So without further delay, I'd like to introduce my guest, Michael Bolden. I am joined today by Michael Bolden of the 10th Amendment Center and very pleased to have him on. And I wanted to have him on. Well, first of all, let me say welcome, Michael. Hi. Great to talk to you. This is pretty exciting. Now, we talked before we started recording. We talked for like 20 minutes in a warm-up, and that was actually the really good stuff. So <laughs> if the show is average, you guys just missed it. That's why you should sign up to be a Patreon so that you can get some bonus content. Oh, nice, nice. <laughs> learning learning from Tom Woods. Michael has a podcast now, or I guess it's, I mean, it's on YouTube. It's everywhere. So I don't know what it would be considered. I believe in making content available in as many places as possible because, yeah, for so many years. I mean, like like me, I'm sure you grew up with three television stations barking at you with what's right and probably was sanitized by the Pentagon in the first place. So uh, I like just going to where people are and providing them with stuff. And if they're interested, they'll come back. And it was Good Morning Liberty, but now it's changed to, what is it called now? Path to Liberty. I jacked somebody's name and realized it and then reached out to them and said, oh my goodness, I just realized that I've been copying your show for over a year. So so now it's Path to Liberty and you can find that yes. on YouTube and... 10thamendmentcenter.com slash Path to Liberty, all spelled out. So on Path to Liberty, you discuss, you're on three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday yep. at... 11 your time, which is Pacific, right? 9.30 no, a.m. 9.30 your time. It's 11.30 percent of people watch, don't watch stuff live. I just like doing live broadcasts because I just like having the ability to do it. And you can really just kind of engage with people as it happens. So that sometimes is really fun. On your show, you talk about some pretty interesting topics, usually revolving around the work that you do at the 10th Amendment Center. We've already had Mike Meharry on. So let's hear the Michael Bolden version of what the 10th Amendment Center does. His is way better. The <laughs> short version is we look to the Constitution as kind of a line in the sand. The federal government is only supposed to do a limited amount of stuff and everything else is reserved to the states or the people to deal with how they want to in their own geographic area. The reason for that 
to at least in my view, and I think the founders took the same position, is that when you have a large landmass, a large country with a wide range of political, economic, religious, social views, all living in the same country, but you, this wide range, you cannot have one size fits all solution. So this decentralized approach where what's right for Oklahoma may not be right for California and may not be right for Montana and vice versa. That's the only way you can have this type of a, a society where people can live together in peace. Now, as a total side note, we can see how this has played out where it's gone the opposite direction. When you have a one-size-fits-all solution, when everything is a federal issue, you find that every few years or every couple of years, it's a low-grade civil war of one group of people trying to take over the other group of people and control the entire pie. And that really has not played out well, in my opinion. And I think the greatest example of this, this is my segue, my greatest, the greatest example of decentralization using the Tenth Amendment in action is cannabis. There is nothing in history that has played out more perfectly than the political and activist efforts in support of legalization, whether it's medical, whether it's uh, recreational, CBD, hemp, and on and on despite the fact that the federal government for so long at every level has said it's all illegal. Now, some of that has changed. There's some cracks to that, but not a lot. And it's because there's a lot of people who just decide that this is right for them. And then eventually from the people, then maybe a local community or a state will back them up. And we see how it plays out with 33 states now uh, telling Washington, D.C. to shove it, basically, when it comes to policy on cannabis. Yeah, and D.C. is finally kind of catching up to the population. They're talking about some easing some of the restrictions and then also making it possible for cannabis companies to get banking. The only reason that's happening, in fact, I talked about this in a video, maybe like 2014 or 2015, the, the reason, at least in my view, that that's starting to happen is because they just flat out don't have the manpower to do anything about it. Now, Barack Obama, a lot of people think he was, especially from the conservative end of the spectrum, a lot of people think Barack Obama was soft on marijuana prosecution. They said he backed down, he stopped enforcing, but we know the numbers. We've looked uh, through the numbers from, like, I think it was Americans for Safe Access that uh, compiled all the enforcement statistics. And in Obama's first term, in just his first four years, he conducted more federal marijuana raids and spent more federal money on marijuana enforcement action than George Bush and Bill Clinton combined wow. in 12 years. So Obama's four years, he was more aggressive on enforcement. And I think uh, we could talk about why I think that narrative exists, that Obama was soft on weed. But the fact is, it's a lie. I believe it's propaganda. And the end result is they tried really hard. All three of these presidents tried really, really hard to stop the people and the states from going forward on cannabis. And they just failed. So they're having to, and you can see in their own statements, their internal documents that they sometimes make public, that they just have to prioritize resources to what they call the biggest offenders or maybe cartels, whatever it may be. That's because they don't have the numbers to get the job done the way that they really want to, because so many people are doing it anyway. Well, and then they also have to have cooperation from local law enforcement, 
when they yep. go in and do these raids and stuff. Yeah, and in fact, that happens all the time. So the more that a state, and we know that uh, the FBI statistics basically show that somewhere around 98 to 99 out of 100 arrests happen uh, through the enforcement action of state or local police, not federal agents. So when a, a state like California legalizes uh, marijuana for medical purposes, like we did here uh, back in with Prop 215 back in 1996, that removes a layer of enforcement capability that the feds can't rely on as much. And then when you expand that to r recreational as well, then it becomes ubiquitous. Here in LA, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, cannabis stores just in Los Angeles alone. We know through their numbers, the average amount that it costs them to investigate and prosecute and shut down one, like one dispensary, we can add up all the numbers and it would take the DEA's budget, about 40% of their annual budget, just to stop Los Angeles alone. And we're not talking Seattle, San Francisco, Denver, I mean, Oklahoma City for that matter at this point. There's just no way that they have the money or the resources to do it. Speaking of resources. Yes. One of the ways that local law enforcement, and I guess federal as well, but typically it's mostly on the local level. Yes. One of the yes, ways that they fund their war on drugs is through civil asset forfeiture, which a lot of people, if they're new to to cannabis or or maybe they've heard of asset forfeiture, but they always they always thought that it was money and property taking from people who were criminals and had been criminally convicted of something uh -huh. well and aren't aware of what civil asset forfeiture is so i was wondering if you could kind of tell our listeners what civil asset forfeiture is this is a huge part of the drug war and it's part of what keeps the entire machine going and beyond just funding uh the drug war enforcement asset forfeiture in general funds bloated police departments. So if you don't like what government does, uh, let's say you don't, you're, you're not in favor of their surveillance or gun control or all kinds of other things. A lot of times it comes from this. So if we want to strike the root, this is a big part of it. This, this might be one of the largest roots is the drug war and the connection to asset forfeiture. Now, civil forfeiture is different than criminal forfeiture. In civil forfeiture, this is a tool where law enforcement agencies actually can take and keep property just on the mere suspicion that it was connected to a crime. So they can say, oh, well, we think that this was involved in criminal activity, so we're going to take your property. It could be cash, it could be a car, it could be a house. And then you basically have to, now, when I tell people this for the first time, if they're just not aware or engaged on things, they're like, man, you are full of crap. There's no way this is not what's happening because they think that the country uh, is has this principle of innocent until proven guilty. But with asset forfeiture and the excuses to stop the, to to run the drug war, to stop the dangerous drug users, uh, anything from cannabis to whatever else. And they take things on the suspicion of criminal activity. And then you basically have to prove that it wasn't involved in criminal activity to get your stuff back. An example that we learned about sometime in the last year, and I don't have the exact details, but basically a, a parent lost his home because his late teenaged year kid was doing some small time drug dealing. It wasn't cannabis. I don't know what the product was. Whether he should or shouldn't be doing that, I think, is its own conversation. But he was doing some small-time drug dealing to friends at college or whatever it may be, and they ended up taking the 
guy, the kid's dad's home because they saw the home as a base of operation. And there is no way for him to prove that the home was innocent. They're charging property with a criminal activity. And some of the cases involved in this literally are charging property. For example, there's one like uh, United States versus one solid gold object in form of a rooster. That was literally the name wow. of a case. Or state of Texas. You're in Texas, right? Mm-hmm versus a 24, 2004 Chevy Suburban. This is like, these are some of the famous asset forfeiture cases. They're charging an inanimate object with criminal activity, and then you just lose it. So they're ripping people off. This is stealing. In preparation for our talk today, I was watching videos on civil asset forfeiture, and my nine-year-old was playing, and and every now and then he'll, well, if the TV's on, he's staring at it. So he was kind of paying attention, and he was just like blown away. Like, that, what is this? Yes, that, that your property could just be taken because basically somebody wants it. And then you have the burden of proving that, no, there was no criminal activity involved. Yes. And it is and it is it's completely bass-ackwards from the way we think, think things work in this country because we always think you have the presumption of innocence. Whereas with civil asset forfeiture, there's the presumption of guilt. And somebody has to prove that, no, this had no connection to criminal activity. Mind you, we're not even getting into the absurdity, really, of charging a Chevy Silverado, really, with criminal activity and having it proved. So uh, it is pretty insane. And they use this money. This is billions and billions. This is not a small-time criminal operation. This is billions and billions of dollars. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but it really is a large part of some uh, some law enforcement agencies' budgets. For example, when New Mexico a few years ago was one of the first states to actually take a strong act to restrict the use of this, the Albuquerque police lobbied aggressively against this because they basically said they wouldn't have enough money in their budget to keep their uh, department running as is. So they're they're creating these bloated budgets out of money that's being stolen. And then when you try to stop it, they lobby against people and say, well, you're not with law and order. You're against the police. And it becomes a very difficult situation. Now, there's actually two different types of civil asset forfeiture that are important to talk about. I don't know if you want to cover that. There's a relationship between the state or local level and then the federal federal equitable sharing their asset forfeiture program as well. Did you want to talk about that too? Or Yeah, we can, because what happens in these states where they come in and say, okay, you can't do civil asset forfeiture anymore. Then they do an end run around the middle and yeah. bring the feds in on all these cases. Yes. Yes. And whew, yeah, it's pretty crazy. So here in California, we actually had some of the s- strongest restrictions against asset forfeiture in the country. Just wow. on the state level, yes, uh, for quite a while. And we learned over the years that uh, they actually – it didn't stop them and because – what they did was they told state and local law enforcement, you can't do this under state law. It's it's illegal in most situations. But it just continued because we learned that there's this program from Washington, D.C. called equitable sharing. So let's say they pull somebody over and they've got $500 cash and they're like, oh, this person's driving while black. I'm going to assume that they're a criminal drug dealer and then I'm going to take their car. I'm going to take their money. But state law says I can't do this. But you know what? 
stealing this drug is illegal under federal law. So I'm going to call up my buddy at the ATF, the local uh, station chief or the FBI, and say, you know what? I think we have a federal case. And under a process called adoption, the federal government adopts the case as the lead agency. The local law enforcement agencies still actually work. They're basically doing the job for the federal government. There's like one or two people that they maybe report to. And then it's a federal case. And then the the forfeiture still happens. They take the cash, they take the car, but it goes to the federal government. The federal government, if they do an auction on it, they sell that car, they keep 20% of the proceeds and they divvy 80% back to the law enforcement agency. And California was notorious for this up until I think 2016, 2015 or 2016, where they actually opted out of that program in about 80% of the situation. And there's a number of states that are basically addressing this, New Mexico, uh, California, Colorado, Arizona to some extent, uh, Nebraska, Ohio, and probably one other where they're basically saying, look, uh, first we need to, re- oh, Arkansas is another one. We need to restrict civil asset forfeiture, say that you can't take people's stuff without a criminal conviction. But at the same time, we have to recognize that law enforcement agencies still do this under the federal program. So we're going to have to pass another law to say, now you can't do that. It's a bit of a whack-a-mole, but as the, we play the whack-a-mole, we're actually seeing that it is cutting back on this in significant ways. Yeah, I was looking at IJ, and I can't remember what that stands for now. Institute for Justice yes. is the best organization when it comes to uh, to uh, learning about asset forfeiture and seeing what's going on on it. We've learned so much from them. I was looking at the handbook or whatever the big annual yeah yeah, the big report right the report that they put out and the statistic forum in 1986 the feds took in like 93.7 million but by 2014 it had increased to like 4.5 billion dollars in forfeitures i keep saying insane and maybe that just sounds like some kind of a platitude but this is nuts yeah It really is nuts. It is such a violation of rights. This is in the so-called land of the free. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to me, I think uh, history will look on this very with a great deal of disdain if it's ever ended. And when you kind of dive into the statistics that they've done, the people that are most affected by civil asset forfeiture aren't drug dealers. They're everyday American citizens. Yeah, in some cases. uh, So uh, in Colorado, they restricted uh, participation in the equitable sharing program for anything that was $50,000 or under. And, you know, I don't think uh, I don't think something is theft only if it's over a certain amount, like yeah. if you steal five cents from someone or you steal five trillion dollars, uh, you're still stealing. But this was the only way we've learned that because of police opposition, this is the only way we have found to at least get the foot in the door. So a number of states are actually taking that approach. But then this is League of Counties or League of Cities actually did some reporting on this. They did some studies in Colorado, and it turns out that about 85 percent of all forfeiture cases are less than fifty thousand dollars. And I think the average was somewhere between five hundred and a thousand bucks. So if you could restrict eighty five percent of it or opt out of 85% versus 0%, I will take that. But we also have to keep our eye on the ball and recognize that there is a, there's a further action that needs to be taken. But yeah, it like, just back to your, that's the long version of getting to your point. It certainly is affecting everyday average people 
not it's not it was meant to go after the cartels just like the income tax was only going to be two percent or the patriot act was just going to be for the terrorists you know so this is what government does is they start on one thing they use fear to say we have to do this to stop some dangerous thing from happening to you and then it goes to another level yeah because according to this thing from ij the median value of forfeited property in 2012 from 10 states because not all states keep real good records on this right right the the value ranged from 450 bucks to two thousand dollars yep and in pennsylvania in 2015 half the cases were less than two hundred dollars so they're not taking money from drug dealers they're taking money from everyday americans just trying to make ends meet. And if you think about this, so I run my organization, 10th Amendment Center, on primarily on donations. We don't have any large, large companies backing us. We have no corporate sponsorship. We rely solely on small donors, $5, $3, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, things like that. And you can actually survive when you have enough people to do this. Mm -hmm. But instead of actually focusing on something good, government, federal, state, and local is taking the same approach to steal from people, probably a lot of people to whom $400 or $200 could be make or break for buying groceries, make or break for paying rent. And it's really problematic. It is even worse in that situation. I mean, again, I don't want to kind of do this kind of moral equivalency and say, well, it's from a rich dude. So 200 bucks is no big deal. Uh, but I think the the social impact, the personal impact of someone maybe not making rent or their car payment or something like that because uh, of police taking something without a criminal conviction is uh, is really problematic if you want to have the understatement of the year. Well, and then the fact that I think you said on your show the other day that civil asset forfeiture actually increases during economic downturns. That yeah. is mind boggling to me. Yeah. And I can't remember what where we got that study from, but it was probably from Institute for Justice as well. Uh, you see that, look, you know, it's the idea. And I think I don't even know if this has ever been debunked or whatever, but I always had the the notion in my head that, oh, OK, end of the month, be care, be careful of speeding tickets this time of the month. And, you know, it's kind of a common joke, but I don't think anyone, if you said that uh, amongst a group of people at a dinner party or something like that, I don't think anyone would say, oh, you're a, a crazy conspiracy theorist. And the thing is, this really does happen with asset forfeiture. They certainly do ramp it up uh, in times when the economy is having a hard time or when the federal government maybe doesn't dole out as much cash because of a so-called shutdown or whatever it may be. Yeah, but that's just that's a disgusting reason to amp it up. Oh, well, it's still more money from the people because we're not getting as much other money. I like the honesty. And I guess I like knowing that that really is a serious motivation. It is a budgetary issue. And that's partly why I believe that Institute for Justice refers to civil asset forfeiture as policing for profit, because when you start getting these millions and millions of dollars especially in some uh, larger law enforcement agencies, it just becomes part of their budget. And then if they're getting it year after year, then they start hiring based on a larger budget. And to cut that back means you don't like cops and therefore you're not on the side of the boys in blue. And then you're going to be, you know, run out on a rail. So they don't like opposition to this stuff. Because they automatically equate if, if I don't want you stealing from poor people or people, period, well, that means I don't support the police. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that it doesn't get enough attention 
mention is how often it does go after poor people. And that's not something that I usually have as a talking point. But I think when you're talking with average people who might be on the fence, making that case is is a big deal. Like, oh, I didn't realize that. I thought they were just you were defending some uh, cartel head from Mexico or something like that. That shouldn't be here in the first place. But no, no, no. It's going after everyday Americans all the time. And then some states you even have to in order to try and get your property back, you actually have to pay to try and get it back. And then if you lose in court, you have to pay all the court costs. Which means no one is actually trying to get it back. Mm-hmm. It does not happen on small amounts. No one is trying to, and, and oh, no one is, you know, don't speak in absolutes, Bolden, but right. no one is, is really getting their money back because at a $400 thing, if you, and you don't know what you're doing, mm-hmm. you're going to have to hire an attorney, take off of work, spend time. Uh, fill out forms, do the right thing, whatever it may be. And then you still have to somehow prove uh, that your your 2004 Chevy Silverado wasn't participating in criminal activity. And you're probably going to lose anyways, because government doesn't rule against government too often. Because I can't change anything on a national level. I can't change anything on a state level. How can I affect change on a local level? Or is that even a possibility? you have any strategies that you might recommend? How do we find out if local law enforcement participates in civil asset forfeiture? Well, since one of the top reasons, if not the top reason for asset forfeiture is the war on drugs, I think the number one thing to do is strike the root and end the war on drugs. So you are already taking action to in your own way. We all are basically a piece of a, of a larger puzzle. We do what we can in our own sphere, certainly. And whether that means working to educate people about the benefits of a plant that people are being put in jail for to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people have been arrested per year for a long time for a plant, a naturally occurring plant. So Educating people on that is important. And then also you can do things, if you're talking about on a very local level, you can work to reprioritize law enforcement resources. Why are we busting people for simple possession of something like CBD, a hemp product, or for example, cannabis, whether it's medical or recreational? That would be a small step forward which would result in less people being arrested and charged or even having the opportunity to have asset forfeiture in the first place. You can do that on a city level, a county level, a town level, state level. I would never say do it on a federal level because I don't think the feds will ever do anything until enough people and enough states and enough cities have told them to basically get the heck out of here anyways. And that's how it's kind of playing out right now. Well, I know in this, you know, the Texas legislature only meets every two years. And so in this most recent, which is just, probably good. Well, it's good and bad. I mean, it's kind of a double edged sword, I suppose. Really? You want to trade um, for a year round legislature in Sacramento? I will no. make that trade anytime you no, want. I'm good. No, okay. I, at the meeting that we had, because we had an um, educational meeting on cannabis here locally. And yeah, I saw you post about that. That's really yeah, awesome. Some And somebody brought up the fact that this is a single issue. You know, that a lot of people are single issue voters when it comes to cannabis. And and kind of my perspective on that is that this isn't a single issue. Yeah, we may be talking about cannabis, but the root of this is the fact that the government does not have the right to tell us what we can and can't put in our body. And that goes far beyond a single issue. I mean, that kind of strikes at the heart of most everything of what government does. But 
With 60 some odd bills proposed, there were a couple that passed through the House. And then before they can even make it to the floor in the Senate, our lieutenant governor has to approve them before they can make it for debate in the yep. Senate. And so we had a pretty good a couple of pretty good bills. They made tremendous crap. What's the word? Headway. They started out really good and then they watered them down so that they'd be more palatable to our yes. very conservative. And they didn't even pass the watered down ones. They couldn't even get them on the floor for debate because right. of one man. And so the thought that are we really, I mean, Dan Patrick's not going anywhere in the next two nope. years. He is, he's still going to be lieutenant governor in two years. So the thought of being able to affect any change on the state level in Texas, I don't have high hopes for that in two years. Well, with Heather Fazio, you definitely have hope rather than none. Well, yeah. And she is an she incredible, great incredible human being and an incredible activist who I think, and she would probably never say that, I think she is... Uh, single-handedly made this an issue that is at least palatable to have a conversation, getting bills out of committee. People are talking about it. People are wondering why a place like Oklahoma can pass the broadest medical marijuana law in American history. Their bill is awesome. Man, it's yes. amazing. Now, And then their legislature went in there and mucked a, mucked a bunch of it up, but you know. But what the people passed there on the ballot last summer is was far broader than anything ever passed here in California back in 96 or expanded from uh, beyond that. Now, of course, it's recreational. It's different. But as far as a medical bill, Oklahoma did it. And Oklahoma is as red as can be. Mm -hmm. So if Texas can't do it, it's more embarrassing than anything, really, because Texas should be at the forefront. Yeah. But the bottom line is you're talking about uh, they're criminalizing what you can put in your body. But I would take it to another level. They're actually – they're actually criminalizing what you can own. This is mm -hmm. the excuse for gun control. And so people, I, I recognize that there are a lot of gun rights activists in Texas who really believe in the right to keep and bear arms being a natural right. You should never have a permission slip to own something. It's what you do with something that makes you a criminal or not. And the same is to be said for any other product, whether it's a toaster oven or a plant that that grows in your backyard. And I think that mentality, David Simpson, when he was in office a few years ago, I think he made a lot of headway talking with Christian conservatives, talking about how, like, look, this is a God-given plant. Why mm -hmm. don't we treat it like tomatoes? A lot of people recognize that, of course, whoever was there before Paxton was the same thing. They don't let it out of the uh, – it's either hard to get it out of committee. If you can get it to the floor, it's hard to get a vote on on the House floor. And then you have the uh, lieutenant governor, which is always problematic. But that's why I think it's also important to address things on a city level or a county level. You can actually decriminalize. Uh, for example, on a city level, and whether state law is really excited about that or not is another story. They had one bill that was a, it was basically, it was going to make possession of two ounces or less a non-arrestable Class C misdemeanor. It's a and great start. Yes, yes. It started out as being a non-criminal offense, and then they had to take it down to this. But at least, you know, it's not somebody being thrown in a cage over two ounces of a plant. Right. And our local representative, they apparently got lots of calls about the issue, and he still wound up voting nay because of pressure from local law enforcement. Uh, and again, so I was talking about law enforcement pressure uh, in regards to asset forfeiture because it addresses their budget. But when it comes to a plant, there is no one who has a stronger opposition to legalizing 
cannabis. And I'm talking about either the so-called marijuana plant, which is at some point was a racist term, but then mm -hmm. also industrial hemp. Uh, there are the same talking points wherever you go anywhere in the country. For example, before the federal government, the, the farm bill of uh, late last year, late 2018 passed, trying to legalize hemp, which we actually had happen in a number of states, even though the Fed said you can't do this, had the same talking points from law enforcement lobby groups, whether you were in Nebraska, California, or anywhere else. And their talking point was, if you legalize industrial hemp, drug dealers will hide cannabis, will hide marijuana in the field, and we won't be able to detect this. Now, mind you, the cops are either assuming that we don't know what the heck we're talking about, or they're just, maybe they're just idiots. Because we know, based on the science, that if you have a marijuana plant and a hemp plant next to each other, the this the end result over time is that the hemp plant basically eats the marijuana plant during the whatever reproductive stage, and then eventually the marijuana plant has no THC. So anyone who wanted to sell a THC-laden plant would never, ever, ever plant it in a field of hemp. And in fact, they want to keep it as far away as possible. So the best way to stop a bunch of THC from being around is to plant hemp everywhere. So yeah. we know the cops will lie and use a lot of pressure to stop these things, but it really is incumbent upon us to stand fast no matter what they have to say. And I think some of it is probably ignorance because they don't know the difference between hemp and marijuana. And it kind of, it looks to, the bud looks the same to them. So they think it's all the same and they don't necessarily understand, well, hemp grows this way. Marijuana looks like this as it's growing. I, you know, and I think they're playing off the ignorance of average people who well, might fall for that too. or legislators. But the fact that it is the same talking point from mm -hmm. state to state to state tells me that they're probably getting this right from the DEA. And maybe they don't know what they're talking about, but they're just like, oh, well, we're getting all that asset forfeiture money to continue helping enforce acting as federal agents or in joint task forces with uh, the Department of Justice. We better just put out whatever statement is because uh, Jeff Sessions or whoever, what's the, the latest guy, Barr, whoever it is in Washington, D.C., they're not going to come and testify in Omaha uh, against a bill. So we're their representatives on the ground. Well, what Texas kind of did without and I don't know if the activists that were promoting industrialized hemp realized this maybe they did but basically there's no lab in the state of Texas that can they can test to say yes there is THC but there's no lab in the state of Texas that can test to say what percent the THC level is mm. so they they've kind of in a way actually decriminalized small amounts of cannabis because there's no way to pursue charges without a confession there's no, oh, wow, there's almost no enforcement mechanism. Wow, that's amazing. Well, you know, and talking about hemp, I think, and as a as a CB, daily CBD user, to me, it's, I'm just personally interested in hemp for, for many reasons. I mean, I, the amount of hemp that I eat and my two little parrots eat on a day-to-day -day basis is one thing. So the fact that for decades it has been illegal to grow just hemp in the United States, while the U.S., is the number one importer in the world. China is the number one exporter. Canada has been the number two exporter for many years. So uh, if you talk about a trade imbalance and you don't address right. the industrial hemp trade imbalance, you're missing something. Stop making stuff illegal or too expensive to produce and you won't have as much of a trade imbalance. Side note. Uh, so 
just the idea of using hemp as food. We used to have a gas station a couple miles from here that ran where people would fill up on, on hemp fuel. I mean, it can be used in so many things, but CBD is another level too, where just last fall, industrial hemp was supposedly legalized under the farm bill, but they put a specific section in there that said, well, this isn't addressing CBD. The FDA is now yeah. the ruling agency on CBD, and the FDA just in in uh, May had a bunch of hearing had a hearing with a bunch of testimony about what they should do to regulate. They still take the position that putting CBD in any food or ingestible product is illegal to enter into interstate commerce, and under their version of the Constitution, anything anywhere counts as interstate commerce, even if it's made in Texas, stays in Texas, and never bought or sold if you give it to a friend that is affecting the interstate commerce. So the FDA believes that all food-based CBD products are illegal to have everywhere, but they don't have the enforcement capability on this either because you can go anywhere. I don't know. Can you find uh, food-based CBD there in Texas pretty easily or... Not too much in where I live, because I live in a pretty rural area. It's a town of like 36,000 people. So, okay. But I'm sure in like Houston, the DFW area, and I'm sure Austin for sure, yeah. you can find that type of stuff. But Austin here, is here a locally, mini Los though. Angeles. Yeah. I mean, I get it everywhere. I can go to a local clothing store and there, there will be a little mini kind of, um, what are those little fridges that they usually use for beer companies, but they mm -hmm. have them filled with like CBD teas and different types of terpenes that they add into it for different effect. This stuff is everywhere. And it, you know, I've seen some reports, for example, Consumer Reports has even covered this. CBD is oh, available wow. everywhere is what they say. But the interesting part is the Fed still say it shouldn't be available anywhere unless it is a CBD isolate called Epidiolex, which has gone through this whole process with the FDA. It's not even real whole plant CBD in the first place, but that's the only one that it's almost like they want to protect the pharmaceutical companies to synthesize this stuff. Yeah, what a surprise, instead of being able to get the naturally occurring plant version, the whole plant version of CBD. Yeah, and then there's a, a lady that's actually suing the federal government because if you're doing research on cannabis, you can only get it from like the University of Mississippi or something. Oh, man. Wow. No, I didn't know about that one. Yeah, Dr. Sue Sisley, she's actually going to be one of the speakers at the Marijuana Policy Conference the Texas, that Heather Fazio is putting on. Oh, cool. So, and so am I. Yay. Cool. <laughs> Very cool. But I'm talking about accounting, so there'll probably be like three people in there. <laughs> Ten. Right. <laughs> triple. It's going to be triple what you expect. Maybe so. Maybe so. Well, Michael, thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and talk to our folks about civil asset forfeiture. I think they'll be as outraged as my nine-year-old uh -huh. when they wrap their head around how egregious this is. Man, you know, in a way, almost we should almost start running things by nine-year-olds because, you know, at that time, I think we're, well, I, maybe I wasn't, but a lot of nine-year-olds are still pretty honest and mm -hmm. innocent and really good. And they think about things logically and they say, well, that's not right. That's not how things should be. Yeah. And if a nine-year-old is calling people out on this, the fact that this hasn't been stopped by us adults is pretty shameful. They don't do all the mental gymnastics to yes. justify it. I mean, they yeah. have a pretty strong sense of right and wrong. Yeah. And so- Well, at least yours does. Well, yeah. Well, it depends on the subject matter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. We can talk. If it's something someone else is doing, then they have a strong sense right, of right and wrong. <laughs> right. Well, that's just plain smart. 
Yes, he's a pretty smart kid. Well, thanks again, Michael. And I encourage everybody to go check out the Tenth Amendment Center. And if you're not a member of the Tenth Amendment Center, I encourage you to do that as well. Michael, you guys do a lot of great work over there. And glad to have you on. And hopefully you can get some more donors or subscribers as a result of coming on today. And even if I don't, I love what you're doing. This is really awesome. And I'm Thank grateful you. for the I'm grateful for the opportunity to chat. I mean, anytime you want to talk about this, we can like at some point if you want to talk about like implementing legalized marijuana in Illinois when that starts early next year mm-hmm. or ballot measures, whatever it may be, some strategy, uh, just hit me up. We'll do it again. That sounds great. I'll certainly be hitting you up in the future. Thanks, Michael. Have a great one. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Show notes for today's episode can be found over at CannabisHealsMe.com slash 58. Y'all be sure to go check out the 10th Amendment Center. The guys over there do great work and they're warriors for liberty, trying to rein in federal overreach. If you consider yourself a student of history and you believe in the founding principles of this nation, then you really need to be following their work and supporting what they're doing. And they're on the Southern Poverty Law Center's naughty list, so they must be doing something right. We will be back here again on Monday with another healing story. You guys have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Hit the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode of the Cannabis Heals Me podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or whatever podcast app you're using. Do you have a suggestion for a guest on Cannabis Heals Me? Send an email to podcast at CannabisHealsMe.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please do not take any information from Cannabis Heals Me or its guests as medical advice. Contact your licensed physician before taking cannabis or using it for medical treatments.